There's a vacancy. There's a void. You're right when you say shift, because it didn't used to be that way. There's something special about a big, open, industrial space. In this next half hour, you'll hear stories produced for Radio Boise's February Radio Race. I'm Olivia Weitz, and I helped curate these stories. Earlier this month, teams gathered at the station to produce stories on a theme, vacant spaces. To explore this, producers went on an audio journey through rural and urban areas with reflections along the way. These pieces are part of a new initiative called the Voices Project. Through stories created by local producers, we want to give you a deeper sense of the people who make up this valley. In our view, news is stories about people. First up, a piece by Carl Burnett. There's something special about a big, open, industrial space. And you don't have to have much. Like, you could just have a bare light bulb hanging in the middle. <laughs> you know, it's just a fog machine, and that's enough. Like, you can create an environment like that. I'm Dave Foster. I live in Boise, Idaho. I moved here in 1993. And when I did, I was very much into electronic music and all-night dance parties that, at the time, we called raves. Dave grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. In the mid-80s, he went off to college in Providence, Rhode Island, where he was introduced to two big influences, electronic dance music and performance art. There's all these warehouses there, like old and old factories. Uh, just, I just met a lot of, of people that were interested in, in doing creative things in the underground. In 1993, Dave's employer sent him to Boise for what he thought would be a temporary assignment. I got here and uh, turned on uh, KBSU and the punk show Mutant Pop was playing. And I'm like, oh man, the Northwest, like this is great. Uh, you know, they'd already been doing a bunch of dance parties at the Crazy Horse. Uh, so I thought, okay, let's try to do something really big. His big idea? Throw a warehouse party like the ones he'd experienced in Providence. In the spring of 94, he and his friends printed up flyers to advertise their first Boise rave. The first one, the theme was bliss. And it probably had some language in there about you don't have to be a electronic music fan. Like you could just be interested in something different. I don't know how, but, but somehow I convinced the S16 Corporation, which is the 16 grandchildren of J.R. Simplot, to allow us to rent this vacant space in the 8th Street Marketplace. Dave and his crew spent weeks planning. Before night even fell on the day of the rave, people started showing up. People were dressed up either in drag or club kid clothes. People in all black. A big, big range. There's people all over the place, like hanging over rafters and stuff. The lineup for the evening included DJs playing house music, but also a few live bands playing noisy electronic and industrial music. There's a band called Wirehead. They were very edgy because they addressed a lot of issues about war and technology and surveillance industrialization. I think a lot of people who had never seen them before were a little bit freaked out by it. 
time, I think maybe there's maybe a little more openness to having a live performance. Soon enough, the crowd was into it. Uh, I'm sure they were having a really intense dissociative experience, especially if they were using LSD. And I got a little bit worried about them later on in the night when uh, the security guard said, OK, we have, we have to shut this down. I said, you know, let me, let me wind this down. Let's not do this in an abrupt way. I didn't feel like it would be safe to just send a bunch of people out onto the street. I ran over to a all-night coffee shop, and it was called the Dreamwalker. Is it okay if I bring the party over here? And they said, yeah, sure, you know, we like the business. So I uh, just got on the PA system and told everyone, okay, uh, we're closing down here, we're all going over there. And like, a lot of people, it's probably like 75 people, all went over to the Dreamwalker. DJs hauled all the equipment over and just kept going uh, until dawn. Other people started, you know, doing the heavy lifting or organizing every weekend after that. That sort of became the dance party in town rather than the crazy horse. The warehouse raves continued for a year or so before eventually branching out into other spaces. But Dave says that it's not just the spaces that have changed. It's not like it is now with electronic dance music where like you, oh, you're not into like this particular slice of the things. Like it was much more open then. But yeah, where if you wanted to do a warehouse show now, I don't know where you do it. This piece was written and produced by Carl B. for Radio Boise's Voices Project. Special thanks to Dave Foster, Jake Height, and to Mike Grenz of Wirehead for the use of his music. Original guitar music by Speedy Gray. Additional music is from the 1994 Party Zone Techno Megamix. A sofa can be an intimate place to have a conversation. In this next piece, hear what came out of an Idaho filmmaker's decision to travel around Idaho in a van with a couch in the back seat, recording stories along the way. Okay, let me turn on the van. Okay. So let's hop in. My name is Sonia Rosario. I'm an activist, a feminist, a daughter, a wife, and um, I am the creator of the Sofa Diaries, a dedication to my mother. I travel in the Chevy van across the state of Idaho with my mother's old Victorian sofa inside my Chevy van, filming, interviewing women, sharing their beautiful stories about the impact of other women on their lives. And we are driving in downtown Boise, Idaho on the sofa as we speak. Wow, that was a bump. <laughs> my mother, um, my mother is Gloria. Gloria in Spanish means glory. This sofa 
held a lot of my memories of my relationship with my mother, the stories that we shared, the laughter, even political debates. She passed away on August the 23rd, 2010. A mother centers the family. Everybody goes for Thanksgiving because the mother's in the kitchen and cooking and everybody arrives. And when the, when the mother is no longer there, there seems a, there's a vacancy. There's a void. You see that apron hanging and no one's wearing it. It is painful. I can't really describe that feeling. It is, it's a, you're in complete darkness until help arrives and then you see the stars. One day I came home and it was Mother's Day. It was the first Mother's Day that my mother um, was not going to be around. And I became extremely sad and um, very lonely. And I began to cry in my dining room. I noticed this feeling that it was very powerful. There was a feeling that someone had walked into the dining room and I became a little spooked, to be honest. You know, I was like, oh my God. I turned and I peeked around the dining room table and the sofa was, I felt peeking back. Like we were both looking at each other and, she, and, and the way she kind of said, aquí estoy, aquí estoy. Por qué está llorando? I'm here. Why are you crying? I'm here. And the next day when my husband arrived, I told him, let's take the seats out of the van. I said, let's put the sofa in there. And I put her in and I took her to Blackfoot. And that's where the Sofa Diaries actually began. I've been blessed, really blessed, to be introduced to some of the most incredible women of Idaho. All these women that I've had on my sofa that I've interviewed uh, have beautiful stories and powerful women, powerful women. The sofa is really a wonderful um, metaphor. She's been in Washington, Oregon, and all of Idaho. Does she have a name? Gloria. Gloria. Yeah. Her name is Gloria. This piece was produced by Holly Beach and Mark and Kelly Hughes for Radio Boise's Voices Project. Music by Thad Kopek and Stacey Randall. You can meet Sonia on March 6th at Boise State for a screening of her documentary, Idaho's Forgotten War. She may even bring her sofa. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit here. Idaho politics hasn't always been as red as it is now. Many Republicans once voted for Democratic Governor Cecil Andrus. Producer Jason Beek sat down with Andrus to ask, what's changed? I moved to Idaho five years ago, aware of the Republicans' dominance in gem state politics. I also knew that there was a time when names like Senator Frank Church and Governor Cecil Andrus, Democrats, were large voices here in Idaho. But I didn't know when this shift in the political climate took place or how it happened. You're right when you say shift because it didn't used to be that way. Former Idaho Governor Cecil Andrus. I was first elected to the state Senate uh, in 1960, 
served in 61 on through the 60s, and it was about an even split in the legislature, and it really started to come apart in about 1980. Governor Anders explained that in 1980, the Democratic Party began to lose support due to the groundwork of a man who would later become governor, Phil Batt. Uh, Phil volunteered, former Governor Phil Batt, to take over the party chairmanship of the Republican Party. And Phil had his own personal financial capability to to move around the state. And he had a car he called the Batmobile, and, and he visited every county of the 44 counties, made certain that they had meetings and, and, and worked full-time at it. And he was a tremendous resource for them. When I've asked people what happened to the Democratic Party in Idaho, many point to what would become a major referendum in the state. They passed uh, a right-to-work bill. Idaho's right-to-work law prohibits any type of union membership requirement as a condition for employment. Opponents argue that the law is an attempt to cripple unions by depleting their ability to raise funds. And that cost, that cost the Democrats a tremendous amount of, of uh, uh, political involvement. Yeah, that was a ripoff. Enter my neighbors Leo and Marvella. Leo and Marvella are Idahoans who identify themselves as conservative, but like many conservative voters, they supported and have a tremendous amount of respect for Democrats like Senator Church and Governor Andrus. It was really weird the way it was worded on the ballot, because it was like if you voted yes, that meant no. you didn't want right to work, but if you voted no, you did. It was very, very confusing. Some of the voters that were hoodwinked by the, the emotional campaign of several years uh, of the right to work, they, they imported a young firebrand who came into the state. Gary Glenn was hired by the Idaho Freedom to Work Committee and directed aggressive voter education efforts that resulted in the election of a veto-proof Republican legislature that overrode the governor's veto to enact right to work in 1985. He then served as the leader and primary spokesman for a 1986 ballot campaign that won voter approval to keep the law in place. He was uh, very articulate and and uh, he was a bomb thrower type uh, personality. Uh, but that cost many jobs. So the, the Democratic in Party influence uh, was diluted because some some of our staunch supporters in the party uh, moved out of state in some instances to find work. There were also political issues on the national level that contributed to the polarization of the two major parties. The Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade continues to have an impact on politics around the country, and of course, right here in Idaho. They tended to try and and pin the label on those of us that recognize the the health of the mother and uh, uh, rape and tried to say, well, the, every, all the Democrats are for is, is abortion on demand, which is not true, not, not true at all. Yet it helped create that single issue that you refer to that, that swung a lot of voters. It feels like my exploration of this vacant space of Democrats in Idaho politics has just begun. Have people changed? Has the political climate changed? Is it a mix of the two? I look forward to having more conversations with people on both sides of the aisle to see if there's common ground in Idaho 
and to get past the sound bites and social media sculpting that dominates politics as we know it. This piece was produced by Jason Beek for Radio Boise's Voices Project. Music from Elon Jewell's album Sundown Over Ghost Town. You're listening to Radio Boise. In this half hour, it's a special broadcast where we're airing stories from Radio Boise's February radio race. We'll be right back. Treefort Music Fest, March 22nd through the 26th, featuring Lizzo, Touche Amore, Always, Kishi Bashi, AJJ, and more across many venues in downtown Boise. More at treefortmusicfest.com or by calling TMF 888-2017. Programming on Radio Boise is supported in part by Gaston's Bakery. Crafting breads, croissants, and pastries served fresh around the Treasure Valley and now also available at their retail shop on the bench at 3651 West Overland at the corner of Laytop. You can learn more at gastonesbakery.com or by following them on Facebook. Hail to the spirit that can unite us, for we do truly live in figures. And with little steps, the clocks go on alongside our essential day. Without knowing our true place, we act out of real relationship. Antenna feel, antenna, and the empty distance bore. Reception. Radio Boise. Your ears make us. Lately, one area of common ground in Idaho seems to be the value of preserving farmland. The first installment in a series by Enzo and Stephanie begins with local farmer Josie Erskine, who says that so far there isn't really a map for preserving farmland around here. At this point, our state doesn't have a long-term plan for ag land preservation. We don't feel like we're in a place where we're losing a lot of ag land. The problem with that is the majority of that land has already been purchased by developers for the future. So the landscape that we see is already been determined as houses. Hello, and welcome to Agricultural Land Preservation of Idaho, a miniseries produced for KRBX. Boise and its surrounding landscape is changing, and fast. The rise of the local food movement throughout the country has increased awareness of the need to preserve the land on which food is grown. As our mayor, David Beter, boasts of plans to make Boise the most livable city in the country, it makes one reimagine how sustainable agriculture and farmland preservation fit into such a bold vision. Because the same resources that make ag land valuable to farmers accessible water, flat terrain, and loose soils are also attractive to potential developers, it could be difficult to preserve these spaces. Current land use policy treats ag land as a placeholder rather than an important asset to sustainable communities. For example, Ada County's 2007 Comprehensive Plan states that land for agricultural uses is generally considered desirable to preserve the agricultural landscape and the local economy until such time as development occurs. Development occurs. Development occurs. Development occurs. Local farmers, such as Josie Erskine with Peaceful Belly Farm and the Ada Soil and Water Conservation District, believe ag land should be considered more valuable than a temporary placeholder for development. 
We caught up with Josie at the Boise Farmer's Market, and she talked to us about the importance of farmland preservation. Valuing farmland in Ada County gives us food sovereignty, but it also gives us a cultural tie to our past and our agrarian society, and it provides scenic beauty. The USDA estimates that between 1960 and 2000, 65 million acres of our country have been urbanized, an amount of land greater than the state of Idaho itself. Exponential urban development, often referred to as sprawl, is changing the landscape of Idaho, especially in Ada and Canyon counties. Urban sprawl is a fairly recent phenomenon. Since 1960, urban areas within the United States have doubled and are expected to continue to rise in the coming decades. One reason preservation of ag land can be difficult is because of how our current society views that land. We sat down with renowned Virginian farmer, writer, and activist. Yeah, I'm Joel Salatin, uh, co-owner of Polyface Farms in Virginia. And he explained this shift in thinking. Farmland, all land, is simply viewed as a commodity, like a, a, an automobile or a radio or, or a shotgun. And once this land has been developed, the value of the surrounding farmland greatly increases, putting pressure on neighboring farms to sell for urban development. Another reason ag land preservation is challenging explains. My name's Janie Burns. I own Meadowlark Farm. We raise grass-fed lamb and poultry, and I'm on the board of the Boise Farmers Market and the Treasure Valley Food Coalition. And that challenge to preserving farmland is our culture's disconnect from food and how it is grown. So if you're so accustomed to getting your food at the grocery store and there's no place from where that food comes, it's hard to see a relationship between the ground that might have a house or you might make money off of for another purpose and, and your food. To highlight this disconnect, Urban Land Institute of Idaho's 2012 study estimates that 98% of the food consumed in Idaho is imported. Is imported. Is in the words of respected New England chef Evan Mallet, we have to recognize that food is more than sustenance. It is community, relationships, culture, and heritage, and it is central to our lives. Therefore, we need to give it as much thought as any other aspect of living. As challenging as it may be, preserving our farmland and prioritizing a more localized food system is an important step to ensure that Mayor David Beter's vision to make Boise the most livable city in the country becomes a reality. This show was written and produced by Enzo and Sniffs. It features music from Sophagus and the Jelly Bones. Thanks for listening. As we heard in that last piece, food brings us together. Next, hear how one woman's decision to stake out a community garden in her yard did just that. I live off of Boise Avenue. It's kind of a busy road, and I live in an apartment. And when I moved in about 10 years ago, I noticed that my little area out in front of my doorstep was not very well tended. It was largely dirt, weeds. What do a single mom, a retired barber, African refugees, and Bosnian landlords have in common? A love for great food. 
Many of us go for years without knowing much about the people who live 50 feet away from us. But this community of gardeners not only brought fresh produce to one another, they sprouted a network of relationships which will enrich their lives for years to come. This is Kelsey Crow and Tara Brandenburg, bringing you Leslie Fuger's story about her neighborhood's community of gardens. About planting a garden in my apartment complex is that I'm not really the kind of person who asks for permission. I'm kind of uh, do it and then get forgiveness later kind of gal. My landlords, they come in to um, manage the property on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So when I decided to plant a garden, I kind of had to finish it over the weekend and have everything in the ground by Tuesday so that they couldn't have me tear it out. And then a rebellion started. The neighbors started planting their own gardens, but they initially had more landscaping than I did. The gardens continued to expand when I had been thinking and Googling compost. I just happened to see the compost bin sitting by the trash can. Oh, that smells terrible. This woman, I went up to her door. My kid was mortified. And she says, oh, I just put it on Craigslist for 50 bucks. You want it? Got the new composter. Gardening has been in Leslie's family for many years. When her grandfather passed away, he was still working his orchard. You know, a 95-year-old man tottering on this 100-year-old ladder, picking hundreds of pounds of fruit. He died just before um, the apricots came on. I was driving over there gathering up the produce. I brought quite a bit of it home here. There was so much of it, it was just like, well, let's see if anybody will buy it. I was driving down Boise Avenue to take my son to school. In the church parking lot next to the dumpster was this vintage bar cart. So when Leslie was stuck with a van full of her grandfather's fruit, pull over and I pick up this garden cart. A few weeks later, apparently it was going to be a produce stand. The produce stand was actually kind of fun. I met a ton of new neighbors. Like, you've been there the whole time? But when she didn't have time to man the produce stand on her own, she put a money box out there. Although my neighbors got pretty protective. And so if I wasn't out there, they were watching. Leslie became friends with her neighbor, Georgine, a steady, calm, African mother. Got a really neat kind of personality. She's going to school and she wears traditional clothing that she makes herself. Mm -hmm. And so she bought several items and we got to visit. Mm -hmm. She also bonded with a gentleman across the street. His name is Morg. He's 88. His wife died eight years ago. And then it even turns out that he is a retired barber. And I thought, you've been standing over there watching me cut my boys' hair for the same amount of time? My boys have had so many bad haircuts on the front lawn. And he was watching. He had a pear tree in the back. So she asked him if she could pick his pears. The first thing I thought as I walked back across the street the first day, I was like, I just got a new grandpa. And the tree is so much closer. So you think Morg would be okay if we just like popped by? We can try it. We can try it. You started out, you had just one little spot over there you was working on. Next thing I knew, you moved over and you was fixing some more. And I thought, well, now just what is she doing? No chickens? Nope. I've got one big patch out there. It's going to stay bare next summer. But, I mean, what if we covered the chickens with, they were covered? I don't want chicken. <laughs> <laughs> chickens is a lot of work. <laughs> when Leslie asked Morg why he didn't eat more of her produce, he said, Stuff you eat, that old, like the egg plants. some yeah. of that weeds and all that stuff. I don't eat weeds. <laughs> you mean zucchini? <laughs> no, that's zucchini if you got enough stuff with it. Zucchini itself has no taste. <laughs> For Leslie, claiming space outside her front door led to new relationships with her neighbors. This piece was produced for Radio Boise's Voices Project. Music was Beyond Jupiter 3 by Ivan Chu.
You've been listening to stories about vacant spaces produced for Radio Boise's February Radio Race. To hear these pieces again, visit Radio Boise's SoundCloud page online. At the same time next week, tune in for another broadcast where we're going to play more stories from the radio race. Music is Dan Costello. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Thank mm-hmm. you.